0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. You may be seated. Well, I've I've met you. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be opening God's Word together. uh, Kind of as David prayed around this verse, uh, um, and as Matt mentioned, we're kind of in a series looking at a very famous passage of Scripture, the Ten Commandments. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles available for you uh, on the back table. So um, feel free even now if you want to slip out and grab one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take it home with you. It's just our gift to you. If you do have a Bible, you just forgot yours today, uh, you can return it. But our, our scripture reading is the 13th verse of Exodus chapter 20. And we believe these things um, are being written by the prophet Moses. Exodus 20 verse 13, being written by the prophet Moses, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, they come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. And so, let's hear together the word of Christ. Very short passage. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Well, John Grissom's first novel, um, he couldn't get published. Uh, It's a novel that was later made into a movie called A Time to Kill. Um, and he tried a lot of different publishers. It obviously, he eventually did get a publisher, became a bestseller. Uh, but it's a fascinating book. It tells a story of uh, a black man in the 1980s in Mississippi named Carly Haley. And his daughter was raped by two men, by two white men, um, there in the fictional town of Clanton, Mississippi. Well, he knew that uh, these men who had raped his daughter, who had tried to murder his daughter, um, wouldn't be convicted. Uh, he he knew that the way the justice system worked in his county, uh, that these people would go free. Uh, they wouldn't uh, serve any sort of justice for the things that they had done. And so he took justice into his own hands uh, in the story, and he kills these two men. and And the story that ensues is this long story about the trial and and everything that goes on. and And I'll let you read the book or, or watch the movie. Uh, But it's a fascinating book, and it brings up a lot of kind of basic ethical questions, Um, like what is justice, and how do we understand uh, a justice system that works? It it makes the reader ask, is there a time for civil disobedience, and, and is there even a time to kill? Now, this isn't a sermon about ethics, or it's not about, you know, when it's okay to do one thing or not another. It's not a sermon about Uh, improving our social structures, or improving our justice system. It's It's a sermon about this command, do not murder. The reason I bring this story up, though, is that most of us in this room are privileged people that have never had a moment in our life, really, where we've been hurt so deeply, where we've been so angry, that we've truly contemplated murder. And If that's true of you, now some of you maybe have, but if that's true of you, then I want you to, rather than think about that from a righteous perspective say, well, of course I've never even thought about murdering someone. But rather, I'd like you to frame that from a gratitude perspective. That means that you've lived a relatively easy life. That means that you've not faced a lot of injustice. That means that you trust the justice system that means that God has been incredibly good to you. So I think we should face this, most of us living in 21st century America, realizing that we have it so good. And we actually live in a place where where laws seem to kind of work out for us. And, and, And most of us here in this room, certainly not true of everybody here, but most of us here in this room today, haven't had to face this question really because we haven't been hurt that deeply. But I think it's interesting when a lot of times, you know, a famous question that Christians ask is, you know, are you a good person or do you think you are a good person? And, you know, it's funny, as I've asked that question, people will say, well, yeah, I mean, I try to be a good person. It's not like I've killed anybody or anything. They kind of throw this out here. It's like, well, as long as you obey, obey this command, then you're basically a good person. And I, just, I know why people do that. It's a, it's a pretty, you know, at least in America, only 0.00032% of people have actually murdered someone. So most people can get by if it's just do not murder uh, by passing this one if this is the good bar test. But I would say when looking at the full counsel of God, our, our hands may not be so clean. So we're going to actually break away from the pattern that we've been following in this series, and I want to look at three things with you. As we talk about this, the sixth rule in our 10 rules series called um, the rule of sanctity. We're calling it the rule of sanctity. And so I want to look at three things. First of all, just understanding the rule. So how does this work? Secondly, I want to look at applying the rule. How do we think about this rule? How do we apply this, uh, this very clear command of scripture? And then finally, obeying the rule. How do we go about truly obeying this? This is one of these commands that that pushes us to the New Testament. And this is the way that the Bible works. Different parts of the Bible push you to to other parts of the Bible. And I think this is a good time for us to talk about something that we haven't really spent a lot of time with, uh, framing kind of a biblical theology for understanding the old covenant, the old covenant laws. The Old Testament, how do we look at this? How do we think about this? What, what impact has Christ and his work done to what we read in the Old Testament, the old covenant laws? Well, Jesus actually explains this very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, how we should think about the Old Testament. He says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, this is very important, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota is going to pass away from this word. What Jesus is affirming here is that both the Old and New Testament go together. They complete one whole. If you take... Just one part of the Bible, it doesn't make sense. It is one whole. Uh, we as Christians, of course, believe, and this is I try to affirm this every week, that God wrote the Bible. The Bible was written by the hands of men, but inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, who was sent to give us these words by Jesus himself. That's why when I read the scripture every week, I say, hear the word of Christ. I want you to hear the word of Christ. You might be saying, well, this is reading from Exodus. This is Moses. This is not red-lettered. Jason is confused. Jesus didn't say these things. Oh, yes, he did. It's all the word of Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the word of God. He's the word made flesh. And here he is, the word spoken. He is the word written down. Jesus himself is teaching us. This is what he says in in John 14. He says, look, there's so many other things I got to tell you. There's so many other things that are going to make sense to you. And when the helper comes, he's going to guide you along in all truth. He's going to make all of these things come alive. He's going to make the old covenant passages come alive. He's going to make the new covenant passage that had yet to be written at that time come alive to the people. That's why when we look at scripture, We're not just passing off information. This is very different from me giving like a U.S. history lecture or something. That's not what's happening here. That's why this moment, this moment right now, you know what we call this? We call this worship. There there is something about God's word. You know when God's word is being preached, when it's being taught, when it's being thought about, because the people of God, the spirit-empowered people of God begin to worship together. That's happening right now. I see some of y'all kind of leaning in We're having a worship service right here. We're worshiping together. We're worshiping because God has revealed these things to us. The word of Christ. And there's nothing like the Bible. There's nothing like this where you have 40, more than 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years writing in three different continents in three different languages, writing one cohesive book that all goes together, that's picking up themes, that's picking up stories, that's that's, that's carrying out this complete storyline. It's all one story. Jesus says, I'm not writing a new story here. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law, and none of the law will pass away until it has all been completed. Anybody see Avengers Endgame this weekend? I did not. In fact, you know what? I've got a a confession to make. Some of you might like me more. When I say this, some of you may like me much less, but I have not seen any of the Avengers movies, okay? But it was fascinating to me that this was the end of a 22-movie series. I mean, that's amazing. Who has seen... All 22. Has anybody seen All 22? Mad respect, guys. Mad respect. Um, Well, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. If I had watched 21 movies, and this is the end, I can't imagine. You you saw the buzz. You saw the excitement. Well, I get it, right? They started selling tickets a month ago because, man, you've put a lot of your life into the Avengers, you know, (laughs) At the end of the day, you you can know that you have this accomplishment. It's actually pretty significant, um, um, and 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 you know this. I'm sure that the uh, final Avengers movie was good. I'm sure it could stand on itself. But but true fans know the only way to really understand all that's being talked about in Avengers Endgame is to have watched the previous twenty one movies. There is a whole story. There is something that goes together. You know, one of my favorite movies, I'll, I'll talk about a movie I know now, and again, spoiler alert on this one, And I, uh, but Shawshank Redemption, it's one of my favorite movies ever, and I love this scene. Again, spoiler alert, you've had 25 years, and so uh, I, I didn't give any details about the Avengers that came out Friday, but this one, I think it came out in 1994, so... But I love this scene. It's a scene where, you know, Andy Dufresne is gone. He's gone missing from the jail cell. If you've seen the movie, it's about a prison break and um, Andy Dufresne is gone. They don't know where he is. You know, you think maybe he killed himself. What's happened? There's no real clues to what's. And then all of a sudden the warden Norton goes into his uh, jail cell and he throws a rock through this poster. And they realize that Andy Dufresne has been digging this tunnel and he has escaped and he is getting out. Now, again, as amazing as that scene is, it only makes sense, that one scene's amazing, but it only makes sense if you've actually seen the whole movie. It's not the end of the movie even. It's just, it's a climactic moment. And to me, it's kind of this great empty tomb moment of Shawshank Redemption, of of movie history. It, It is this great revelation of redemption. But the point is, what I'm trying to say is all this. If you just take the Old Testament, you get Judaism, which has many good things, but it's not biblical Christianity. And if you just take the New Testament, there's many good things in it too, but it's not biblical Christianity. The Bible presents itself as one whole, as a holistic story, this is what Jesus is saying. I haven't come to abolish the law; I've come to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it has all been accomplished. And here's the deal, guys: all has not yet been accomplished. We're, we're not—we haven't reached the end of the story. The resurrection is not the end of the story; it's a climactic moment in the story. where where God's power has been revealed, but the story continues. The heaven and earth has not passed away. Heaven and earth is still here. We are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ has completed the work of salvation. He has paid for our sins on the cross. He has proven his victory over sin and death in the resurrection, but we are still awaiting justice. We're still awaiting healing. We're still awaiting peace. We're still awaiting restoration. Basically, to put it simply, we're still awaiting the second coming of Christ when we believe that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and complete all of the work that he has been doing. So Jesus says, Whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's interesting though. So from here, so Jesus talks about the significance of the old covenant. He says, look, look, I'm not getting rid of this thing. This thing is is so valuable. Preach it, think about it, teach it. But it's interesting to me that the very first place Jesus goes after this huge statement on the bigness of God's revelation, the very first place he goes is to the sixth commandment. He says, the Bible's important. Let's talk about the sixth commandment. As if to say, have you been going around saying, I'm a pretty good person, I haven't killed anyone? Is that how you're measuring? It's almost like Jesus guessed that that's what we would say when we would talk about our own morality. And he says, hold on, let's talk about morality. Let's talk about holiness. You have heard that it was said of old, he says in Matthew 5, 21, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And you can almost imagine everyone listening to the Sermon on the Mount thinking, yeah, only of us have done that. We're good. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry at his brother will be liable to judgment. This is, how about this one? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Now Jesus gets to the heart of matter here because he gets to the heart. The command not to murder has everything to do with how we see one another, how we understand one another. And that gets to the second point here, which is applying this rule. We're calling this the rule of sanctity. And it really frames how we understand one another, how we understand all of human life. And according to scripture, every human life is valuable. Every human has been made in the image of God and therefore reflects something of the character and nature and being of God. You know, when you really step back and just think about what God has done in his creation to display himself, he is showing himself. He is showing his strength. He's showing his attention to detail. He's showing his magnificence. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, this week I had this, a really short trip. Some of these guys I work out with wanted to hike through the Grand Canyon. So rim to rim to rim, I guess. And so I went with him and it was really fast. I flew out Wednesday, hiked in, hiked a bunch of the way on Thursday. It's a long hike. And then hiked out Friday. I took the red eye back. Somebody asked me, they were like, are you ready to preach? And I was like, well, my soul is ready. My body and my mind really aren't. So forgive me if uh, I'm kind of out there a little bit. But it was an amazing trip. I mean, it was so worshipful for me. It, it really prepared my soul. And, and walking through, I mean, if any of you have ever done that. I, I actually, many years ago, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've seen it. But you just don't get a perspective of how huge this thing is until you start walking through. we hiked for 50 miles, <laughs> And just like one little slice back and forth. it's so 25 miles across. And you're just like, well, how long does this thing? And then the whole thing this way goes on for 277 miles. So it's like, I just saw one little slice, and it was like the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. And there's 277 more of it this way. I was just overwhelmed. And you, you just see the layers of rock. Something that's so interesting about it is, is the, the, tra- the trail changes colors because you're hiking through different rock surfaces and different types of rock. It's just a, it was an amazing thing. And of course at night, we would camp down at the river and you just look up and you see the stars and you just think about what those represent, what you're actually looking at, these galaxies. And then to think about this, this is the thought that I kept going through as I was just mystified by God's creation. And I think, God, how sacred is human life? That it is the highest mark of all creation that it has the capacity to display more of your image, more of your glory than any of this. What is human life? What is, how sacred is human life? God says about us, his highest creation, the creation of man and woman, that we are made in his image. And what that means is this. More than anything else in all of creation, you and I have the capacity to display an image of God. And I've given this illustration before, but you know, if, you, if, you, if you get a piece of metal and try to look at it, you can kind of see a reflection. Maybe you pass like a shiny rock in the woods, you can kind of see your reflection in it. But, but what I believe the scripture is saying when it talks about us as the image of God, is saying human beings are like mirrors. They have the highest capacity to reflect, to show, to display God's image. And of course, we see that in human beings. We, we have components in us that are like, unlike anything else in all of the world. There's a relational component to humanity. We have the capacity to love one another, to be jealous for one another, to care deeply, to mourn for one another. Nobody, nothing else in, all, in creation does this. Why? Why did God create this us? Because that's how He is. Because God is a relational God that has d- been displaying love between the members of the cr- Trinity for all of creation, that displays love and concern for His creation. There's a relational component that, that, we, that, that teaches us about God that only we have. Animals don't have this. You know we're also creative beings, just like God is. What, what can humans create? I am blown away by what humans can make, can create, can think up. You guys amaze me with your capacities. And Again, nothing else in in creation has the capacity to create like humans can. Now, there's things in creation that do some cool stuff, like beavers. You ever seen a beaver dam? That's cool. It's amazing. They could take these sticks, they build these houses, they dam up the water, but it's not like beavers have moved on to like houses and condominiums, you know? They, they kind of only have the one design, you know? Like, well, we've got a dam. That's what we do. No, they, they don't really have a capacity to create. God has given them this innate nature to build something, but that's they're very different than humans. Humans just figure stuff out. Why? Because God is like this. Because God creates, and we were made to reflect God. We're, we're beings of character, right? Nobody's ever talked about an honest dog or you know, a bird that had great integrity you know, or a kind squirrel. No, I mean, that's not, only we have the capacity to actually reflect the character of God. We are to be the mirrors of God. And here's the deal, guys, what do mirrors do? They reflect whatever they're pointed at. A mirror only has the capacity to reflect what it's pointed at. You put a mirror in a dark room, it will show you no light. It will show you no image. But you point a mirror at a light, you point a mirror at the sun, it can become a laser, it can become blindingly bright. And here's the deal. This is, what, this is why this command is so important. What it is saying is that your posture toward the other images of God, the other image bearers of God that you see out there is either turning them toward God to reflect his light or it's turning them away from God. You're either gonna be honoring one another and turning them toward the glory of God or you're gonna be destroying one another and turning them away. You're gonna be diminishing the glory that God wants to show in his image bearers. This means that every human being, no matter how small, no matter how young, no matter how old, every human being carries in them the image of God and only God has the right to take that away. And you will either spend your life turning your fellow human beings toward the glory of God or you will spend your life destroying and turning your fellow beings away from the glory of God. C.S. Lewis writes in the old book, The Weight of Glory, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's not talking about other deities, he's talking about the capacity of humanity to to display the image of God, to remember that the dullest, I love this quote, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now, uh, such as you meet now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. These are all mortal. And their life to ours is that of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is why murder is such a big deal. To destroy the image of God is such an offense. But what does Jesus say here? He is saying, if you dishonor in any way, insult, talk ill against, if you dishonor in any way the image of God, if you dishonor in any way the image of God and your fellow man, then you, as if Jesus is saying, as God is saying to us, then you dishonor me. If you dishonor them, you dishonor me. If you're offer- so he goes on to say, if you're offering a guilt gift rather at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift and go before the altar First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and leave your gift. You you can have no peace with God, Jesus is saying, unless you have peace with one another. You have no peace with God unless you have peace with one another. And this is true of our inward-facing relationships, and it's true of our outward-facing relationships. When Paige and I first moved to Atlanta, some of y'all know this, we, we had a neighbor, you know, one particular neighbor that was kind of very, I don't know, outwardly unwelcoming, I'll put it that way. Uh, and it was kind of strangely uh, so, I mean, to the point where she just was saying some very kind of cruel things to us. Now, of course, we've, we've made peace with this neighbor now and we have a great relationship uh, with her, but I, I've talked to her about this. And, you know, the reason she was so skeptical of us was she grew up in church and this preacher had moved to her neighborhood and his wife. And in her church, she had seen Christians who were supposed to be honoring one another, gossiping, backbiting, fighting, judging, cruelty. They weren't killing one another, but they were killing one another. They were killing the image of God in one another. And now, this woman who's well on in years was so deeply impacted by this that happened 40 plus years ago for her. Her basic posture is look, I don't know if there is a God, but if there is one, he's not in church. Don't bring an offering to God if you don't have peace with your brother or sister. This matters in our inward-facing relationship, but it also matters in our outward-facing relationships. Here's the deal, guys. Everyone, Everyone is impressed by someone who has a big job or a lot of money or a lot of influence. It's easy to show favoritism. But here's the thing, that if Christians would really live out our worldview, it would make us so unique And this is the reason that we can truly treat everyone with honor and dignity if we have the long view, if we understand the C.S. Lewis quote that even the dullest and most uninteresting person has been made in the image of God. Christians should be people that show honor and dignity and respect to everyone because God has made them. So yes, of course, this rule, the rule of sanctity, applies to ethical things like abortion or euthanasia, but the rule of sanctity more immediately and more regularly for us applies to the attitude that you have toward the person who's serving you coffee at the coffee shop. It more regularly applies to the the attitude and the posture you take toward the lowest employee in your workplace. It more regularly applies to how you drive. It more regularly applies to how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your parents. (laughs) Are you insulting the image of God? And therefore, are you dishonoring God by dishonoring his image? Now, a couple of practical things to think about as we think about this, a couple of practical postures maybe. First of all, in, in order to really understand this commitment, to not murder, understand a posture of honor. Do you have a posture of honor toward others? Are you seeking to honor one another? Not to insult, not to put down, not to cry against, but to honor one another. Philippians 2 says, in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Now, here's the deal. When we behave that way, when we count others as more significant it so pleases the lord it so pleases the lord it so it so builds a community you know i i just want to brag on all of you just a little bit here when i see some of you out serving some of you who have big time jobs big time degrees big time and you know whatever you have i don't care but but you're just out you haven't you haven't gotten swept up in the world's opinion of these things when i see some of you guys out on your hands and knees, serving toddlers, pushing carts around with aprons on in the lounge. That so pleases the Lord because you're honoring one another, you're serving one another, you're caring for one another. When you serve people, it shows so much honor, and God is pleased with our worship. When you serve someone that's lower than you in the workplace, God is pleased with that when you pull your neighbor's trash can up for them, and don't tell them you did. When you give someone a ride, these are small things, but they just, they show a posture of, of honor, considering others more significant than yourself. Now, again, I want to say this. This doesn't necessarily come with a promise. It doesn't mean if you honor people, they're going to love you. They may still hate you. You know, one of the passages that's been so helpful for me, we preach through it, over many weeks last year in Romans 12. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What do you do when someone's evil to you? You think. (laughs) You give thought to do what is honorable. Now, again, sometimes the honorable thing to do is to call the police, right? Sometimes the honorable thing to do is to let an employee go that's not working. So it doesn't say be pushed over. That's not what the passage is. It's saying treat one another with honor. Treat one another with, with honor. Sometimes that requires discipline. Sometimes that requires hard decisions. Sometimes that requires difficult conversations. But live, but, but, but give thought to do what is honorable. And then I love the next passage. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You may not live peaceably with all, right? There may be some people that just do not like you, but, but so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Have a posture of honor if you truly want to honor the image of God in others. And then second, very practical thing here is, is you have to have a posture of trust. You're going to be hurt." You're going to be treated unfairly, even if you have a posture of honor. This world is full of injustice. And in this world, you'll either become angry, bitter, even violent, or you'll learn to trust. Forgiveness is all about trust. Forgiveness is not about letting injustice roll. No, forgiveness is about trust. If someone treats you unfairly, if someone's cruel to you in the workplace, trust. Trust the process that someone's put in place there in your work. Do the thing that you're supposed to do. Go talk to the authority. Go do the process. Don't don't just harbor bitterness against them. Don't be violent against them. Don't seek ways to backstab them. Trust the process. Trust the order that has been put in place. If somebody's doing that in your neighborhood, place where there's a little less order, follow a process. Go talk to them. Go seek peace with them. You know, if someone's done something really heinous, trust the process of our justice system. The Bible talks about this, that God has given us a a justice system. He's given us governments for our good, for order. Romans 13 says that the government bears the sword and does not bear the sword in vain. Now, again, please do not hear me to say that our justice system works perfectly. It certainly does not. But there is in it, and, and, and as Americans particularly, we can trust that there is some frame of order in our justice system. We should certainly work to improve it but God has not given the sword to us as individuals. He's not given the sword to the church. No, he's given the sword to the government. Let's trust the processes that God has put in place. And then finally, if you, if you want to have a posture um, that really honors one another, you have to trust God. There's going to be things in your life that will never be settled in this life. You got to be okay with that. You know, there's going to be offenses. Those really nag at you, don't they? This is not in my notes. This is just on the side. You ever been offended a long time ago and yet it's never been settled? And, and you know, I would say if you can settle it, pursue that. But sometimes those things just go unsettled. There's some of those that I find myself thinking about that happened like in middle school. And then I think, ah, oh, I just gotta move past that. No, but, but trust, you gotta trust, you gotta trust the Lord that his justice is perfect even though it may come slow. Sometimes we may be frustrated with God's patience. But part of being a Christian is believing in God's perfect justice, that he will settle every account, that God will answer all injustice with perfect justice. And I just want to say this. We know, you know, I know. We are not just people that have been victimized by injustice. We are people Even in just this one law, that are both victims and people that are guilty of injustice. Who here wants to stand up and say, I have perfectly honored the image of God in my fellow man? Who here wants to say, I've treated everyone with honor? I've treated everyone with respect? No, of course, all of us have blood on our hands. Which brings me to the last point how do we obey this rule? How do you obey the rule of sanctity? How on earth do we obey this rule? You know one of the stories in the Bible that is most fascinating to me? It's found in all four Gospels. Not every story is found in all four Gospels. It's kind of rare, actually, when you find a story that that appears in all four of the Gospels. But it's the story of Barabbas. You know this story? It's when Jesus is being put on trial. Pilate kind of knows that Jesus is innocent. But of course the people are crying out, crucify him, we gotta put him to death. And so Pilate comes up with this plan. It was customary that the people would release one prisoner at Passover. And so Pilate finds the worst guy, Barabbas. He was a murderer, he was a swindler. Everyone hated Barabbas. And so Pilate says, okay, well, I'll give him an easy choice here. Jesus or Barabbas. This guy who, I don't really know what he's done wrong, or this guy that is a notorious criminal. Surely they'll choose to release Jesus. But of course, Pilate guesses wrong. They choose Barabbas. And I'm sure Pilate was thinking, I don't want to let this guy back out on the streets. This truly is a danger to society here. But the crowd chooses Barabbas and they choose to crucify Jesus. You know, I I looked this week. What happened to Barabbas? There's no historical record. There's no biblical record. We don't know. So allow me to use my imagination. (laughs) And this may or may not have happened. So I don't know what happened. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. But here's what I like to think. I like to think that after that happened, Barabbas was interested. He was fascinated what had just happened. He just went free. I mean, he knew. He was done. He was he was going to the cross. And this guy, this preacher, rabbi guy is now going. And so I can imagine Barabbas, maybe at a distance, kind of following the crowd out to Golgotha and sitting there watching Jesus and the nails go through his hands and the nails go through his feet and seeing him hung up on the cross and just thinking to himself, wow, you know, an hour ago, I thought that was me. I thought I thought I was that guy. And now this guy's dying, and I'm free. I've been released. He is literally hanging in my place. He is condemned on my behalf. I like to think that Barabbas, the guilty one, saw this innocent man hanging in his place, and he was moved by that. Barabbas the murderer, Barabbas the one that had so disrespected human life, Barabbas that had so dishonored his fellow man, now is free and this innocent man full of love and healing and compassion is hanging in his place. And I like to think that Barabbas went and sought out somebody who knew, a disciple, and and eventually he realized that, that Jesus didn't just spare Barabbas from physical death by the Romans, but Jesus did so much more than that for Barabbas. Jesus spared Barabbas if he would trust in Jesus and look to Jesus in faith, that Jesus spared Barabbas from the justice of God, that Jesus didn't just hang in his place and spare him from the justice of the Romans. No, Jesus hung in his place and spared him from the justice of the Almighty. I like to think that Barabbas considered the cross and was changed by it. And I would like to think that each of you with blood on our hands who haven't murdered one maybe physically, but we have murdered them emotionally, mentally. We have dishonored. We have insulted. We have cried out against. We have been angry against. Image of God. I like to think that each of us would consider the cross and be changed by it. And here's the deal, I want to say this to you. It's not just that Jesus, the innocent, hung in your place or in my place. It's that he honors you. He honors you. He honors you worthy of no honor. God honors you. He he doesn't just, it's it's not just that God forgave us and us of sin and said, all right, slap on the hand, now go get after it, do better. No, God in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, God says, I honor you as my son, as my daughter. I honor you with a crown. I, I honor you with glory. I honor you with life. How do you obey this rule? How do you honor one another? You realize that you are a person who has been honored you have been significantly honored by the almighty God. So I want to encourage you as we close to meditate on these things. And so let's close our eyes together and just just take a few moments as we close to consider the cross. To put yourself in the place of Barabbas. Watching Jesus... Stand in his place. Watching the innocent stand in his place. And realize that through his son, God has honored you and he has pursued you. And now he's called you to honor one another. And and I want to say today, next Sunday, we're going to take communion together. We're going to break bread remembering the body of Christ. We're going to drink the cup remembering the blood of Christ. We're going to remember the new covenant. And there there are some of you here that, that need to prepare for next Sunday. There is a brother that you are not settled with. There's a sister that you're not settled with. You need to go seek forgiveness. You need to go seek reconciliation. You need to to honor them. You need to make amends. It may be an inward-facing relationship. It it may be an outward-facing relationship. It may be somebody that you've just so belittled. And the good news that I have for you is that Jesus stood condemned in your place. And now we can stand boldly before the eternal God. We can stand before God in Christ as if we are as righteous as Christ is. Jesus has taken on all our sin. He's been condemned in our place. We are more free than even Barabbas felt that day. We're eternally free in Christ. But as people who have been so honored, be people who honor one another, be people who honor the image of God in one another. Remember, you are either pointing them toward or pointing them away. So I just want to give you a few moments as your heads are still bowed just to meditate on these things. Ask the Lord for revelation. Ask the Lord to To send conviction, to send help. And before you come next Sunday, if God is showing you something now, deal with it. Seek reconciliation. Seek honor. Just take a few more moments. And I'll close us in prayer. Father, Jesus himself said (laughs) that if one of us insults a brother, we're liable to hell, we're liable to punishment. Father, I know that most of us naturally don't really believe that because we're so small-minded, we have no concept of your holiness. We have no concept of... Your glory, we have no concept of what it means to be made in the image of God. So I, I pray, Father, that you would increase our minds, increase our revelation, help us to believe your word, help us to believe the word of your son. And Father, as we believe that word, and Father, that you would also help us to believe your word of forgiveness and life to us, You're your, the word of the gospel, Lord that Jesus has come to rescue us and to redeem us and to heal our souls and hearts and to turn our minds toward you, Father, away from ourselves, away from our self-aggrandizement and toward your true glory. And so, Father, give us a humble posture, a posture that seeks to honor you with our lives, a posture that seeks to honor one another, a posture that truly sees others as more significant than ourselves. And Father, give us a posture of trust. Father, as we think about forgiveness, it is impossible for us to truly forgive other people unless we trust you, unless we trust that your justice is perfect. You truly will settle all accounts. Father, help us to trust you. Father, help us to trust you with our lives. Turn our hearts toward Jesus now. May we feel the honor that he gives us. May we feel the love that he shows us. And Father, may we respond with lives of honor and love toward one another. And we pray all this in the strong and good name of our Savior who speaks so well to us. Sometimes strongly, sometimes gently, but who speaks. I pray all this in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678 951 9041 or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.